0: It's really, to me, it's mostly about being tuned into what your landscape is suitable for first, and then everything else kind of can feed into it, but make it something you enjoy.
1: This episode of Voices from the Field continues Atra's podcast series on women shepherds, She's Raising Sheep. Becky Weed talks with NCAT Regenerative Grazing Specialist Linda Poole about the role of sheep in, as she puts it, farming as if nature matters. Becky and her husband, Dave Tyler, run 80 crossbred long wool ewes in Montana's Galton Valley at 13 Mile Lamb and Wool Company, a spectacular setting where shepherds face daunting challenges from large predators as well as from exurban development. Becky shares her path of learning from mistakes and through careful observation. Don't miss Becky's story of Max, a livestock guardian dog who dances with fawns. Becky says adaptability is the name of the game in helping her flock, land, business, and community prosper in times of unprecedented change. Let's listen.
2: Hi, and welcome to another one of our continuing series called She's Raising Sheep. This is Linda Poole, a regenerative livestock specialist with the National Center for Appropriate Technology, and today our guest is Becky Weed. She's from Belgrade, Montana at this point in time, but over her career, she's been a carpenter, a geologist, fiber artist, agroecologist, and she is a top-notch and in- integrative thinker on all things related to sheep, community, equity, and building a better future. She, with her husband Dave Tyler, tend a flock that's been up to 300 ewes, running around 80 ewes now. They market organic lamb and natural colored wool, and many of their sheep have been bred, especially for creating sweaters and hats, which are so um, beloved here in Montana. Along the way, Becky has owned and operated a woolen mill. She's been a member of the Montana Board of Livestock. She's chaired the Montana Organic Association. And she's been active in the Wild Farm Alliance and the Predator Friendly Movement. I could go on and on about Becky's background, but I think you'd really rather hear from Becky than about Becky. So, welcome, Becky. Thank you, Linda. So I think what would be helpful for people would be, you know, that's a that's a impressive resume and probably confusing to people who are just hearing about your work for the first time and your 13-mile farm. How would you introduce yourself and the operation that you and Dave have there?
0: Oh boy. That's an interesting question. I don't know. We have primarily been running a sheep ranch here. We've been on this place um, in Southwest Montana for close to 36 years now. But I I didn't grow up on a farmer ranch. And even though I've been here for a long time, I still kind of consider myself a newcomer. My background as a geologist is as much a part of my story as my more recent life as a sheep rancher. I don't really see them as being that separate. Dave is an engineer by training, and both of us had kind of a life on landscapes in different ways before we started ranching, and that continues to be influential in my life.
2: What can you tell us about about your sheep operation itself? You know, what type of sheep do you raise? How did you choose those breeds or that style of sheep? And uh, what what does a shepherd's year look like for you?
0: Well, the type of sheep that we raise has been evolving over a long time. Uh, When we first started, I really didn't know my head from a hole in the ground, and I got some I guess our very first flock was a mixture of animals that we brought, that we bought from a local person, very small flock, kind of conventional mixture of Montana type fine and medium grade wool breeds. And there's been a number of steps along the way. But we pretty quickly moved towards medium frame, medium grade, dual purpose animals. I was interested in both producing meat and fiber. And it's that sort of dual purpose nature of sheep that was one of the things that appealed to me to begin with. I had a little bit of fiber experience as a kid, nothing that serious, but I had done both some spinning and knitting. And so I was interested in the fiber But I understood from the beginning that if I couldn't earn income from the meat as well, then it wasn't going to be able to be a significant business for me, or at least that was true in my mind. Anyway, we now, for the last several years, I've been raising a flock that's, I would say, primarily Romney. But we have, for many years, have had a little bit of a mixture of several different British breeds and now in the last two years, we have been crossing in caracals, which is a pretty radical shift, and I'll explain more of that later. I would, I'd say I've always been interested in having some diverse fiber qualities. For 15 years, we ran the wool mill, and we did custom processing for other growers, but we also had and have a line of yarn that we're doing. A few years ago, we sold the wool mill to one of our employees, and so she's still running it happily about eight miles from here, so I still get some of our wool processed there. So that's why we still have the yarn going, although the wool mill is, is no longer my, my primary occupation. And we can talk more about how and why we switched to the caracoles, which is, from what I gather, one of the oldest domesticated sheep breeds on earth and quite different from the typical
2: British, British breeds. That that would be great to just go on with now, Becky, because the caracals really, you know, being a fat tail breed and and with their different uh, fleece characteristics, I'll bet our listeners would be fascinated why you've made this somewhat radical shift.
0: Well, I've always been somewhat interested in the primitive breeds. I guess the closer to a wild animal, the more affinity I felt like I had, but um I didn't go that route for a variety of reasons. I felt like in trying to raise meat and fiber, I I felt obligated to stick with some of the more conventional strategies for good reason. We were selling primarily knitting yarns and for we were for many years we were selling lamb to stores and restaurants as well as to individuals. So I didn't feel like I really knew what I was doing enough to stray that far from the mainstream, although I was already straying pretty far from (laughs) Montana mainstream just by virtue of not having Targhee and Rambouillet. I finally decided to make this shift when I had some fewer constraints, and I also feel like the realities of climate volatility and other things I've been trying to do on the ranch Made me wanna aim towards a thriftier breed, a hardier breed, and I also over the years have been really interested in felting, and caracal wool is is really excellent for felting, and so that was another driver. And I learned about a an older woman in Washington who had been dealing with caracal for years, but she was getting close to the point where she really needed to retire, and so there was an opportunity there that I hadn't had before. It's not entirely rational to make such a big shift, but a lot of things aren't entirely rational.
2: Huh. There's so many things I so many questions I want to ask you, but the, the idea of not being entirely rational, I always am curious about the holistic goals that people have for their operation and if it's holistic, it's really about a goal for your life. So what guides you in how you how you run your sheep operation and how you spend your time?
0: Well, I can't claim to always have had a, a clear-headed uh, single-focus guide, but I think I was interested in sheep in the first place because I knew that they were well-suited to a, a grass-based approach to managing a piece of land. I knew that I didn't have a really large landscape to work with, and so it seemed more practical than cattle or bison or other interesting possibilities that are grass-based, and I just didn't have that much experience, and so it seemed like something that was more within reach, and as I say, I liked the dual purpose nature of it, but in general, I guess I've always been as interested in landscape as I have been in livestock. And and so she just seemed like a means to that end. And it's a little bit hard to articulate exactly why that is. And, and now as our ranch has evolved and as I have been thinking more about effective ways to eventually be able to hand this place on to younger people who will stay in agriculture, I've become increasingly interested in not sheep per se, but figuring out appropriate ways to reintegrate cropping and livestock, which used to be central in in pretty much all agriculture. And now people are kind of returning their focus to that way of managing land. And sheep seem really good for that because you can manage them at different scales and use them to improve soil. Uh, if you do things right, but it also allows for individuals or a group of people to keep doing things like whether it's raising vegetables or cover crops for land management changes or working with people who are raising grains and pulses. There's a lot of ways you can do it without having massive infrastructure challenges.
2: Mm. It makes me think about a recent episode in this series with New Zealand shepherd, Bev Trowbridge, who talked about farming sympathetically with the environment. And as as I was talking to Bev, I was actually thinking about you, Becky, and I was lucky enough to spend a little time with Becky last fall and walked across her property and was really struck with how your operation is set into a community, so into a community of people over time that you just talked about, but also set into the natural communities and the wildlife corridors that you're establishing. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing to see that where where the wildlife can move down and through your place, but raising sheep, that brings... That brings predators along with beauty and diversity. And so I wonder how you could, you know, what you could share with us about your version of farming sympathetically with the environment. And what do you do about predators?
0: Well, the challenge of predators, I was pretty darn naive about when we first started. And, but it kind of led me into broader thinking about what it means. To farm and ranch as if nature matters. But when we first started, as I say, we started small. I just got a flock of about a dozen sheep. And within two weeks, I lost 20% of my flock uh, to coyotes. And I, I actually had to leave for a few weeks. Um, my husband was working in town. I had to go because of a, um, some follow-up to some graduate work I had done when I was a student. And so it was kind of a shocking, inauspicious beginning. And the first thing we did was what the neighbors told us. We called up the local government trapper and he came and he shot one coyote and snared one and very effective guy. And it really wasn't until that experience that I began to learn a whole lot more and think a whole lot more about what it really means to raise livestock in the presence of native carnivores. And both Dave and I pretty quickly decided that if we have to exterminate the native species in order to ranch, then we probably don't belong ranching. So we immediately started poking around and listening to alternative ways of thinking about this. And pretty soon after that, got a guard animal. We our first guard animal was a burrow that came out of the Ruby Valley. And later on we got a llama, and the llama was pretty good for about eight years until he got bored then we got a second llama who got scared and by that time I had already I think this was pretty early on in the in the kind of introduction of eastern and central European guard dogs to North America but I had been reading about it From the beginning and and eventually moved towards working with guard dogs, and that took a few tries before we found a system that worked. But eventually we ended up with a guard dog who was just unbelievably excellent. He was a very complicated emotional creature, and I think that was what Mm -hmm. part of what made him an effective guard dog, but we had to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And we learned too. The effort to coexist with carnivores is really about much more than seeking the silver bullet that will fix all your problems. It's really about how you manage the sheep, where you put them at certain times of year, how you monitor them, and other you know subtle things you do about making your presence known on the landscape. That isn't only about having a guard animal. But one of the things that was kind of fascinating about getting to know the guard dogs was that the more I got to know them, it became clear that they live in this blurry zone between domesticated and wild. Mm. And that was not only fun to watch, but also kind of taught me a few things as well. Mm. Do you want to say more about that? Oh, there were just a few incidents that kind of stick in my mind that are emblematic of what I mean. This one dog we had named Max, um, there were a few few different things he he did that were memorable but one in particular one spring it was June and the clover was high it was back when we had a lot more soil moisture reserve here and I would go out in the evening to it was early in the season but it was late enough so that the animals weren't right up close to the buildings after lambing and I would go out in the backfield to feed them at night and one evening they were at the bottom of a field so I could look down on them from sort of our our whole ranches on a slope. And I could look down at the bottom of the field. I couldn't see very well because the grass was tall, but he was kind of gambling about doing something close to the sheep, but not right with the sheep at the moment. And I got closer and I realized he was playing with a tiny white tail fawn and they were just sort of chasing around each other, very close to each other. And he was having fun. And it sure looked like the fawn was having fun. And uh, and I got closer down there. And he, as as I was maybe halfway down the field, he, he looked up and he saw me coming. And he immediately sort of put on his foot on the fawn. It laid down in the grass. He walked away closer to the sheep, <laughs> met me happily as I came down and left him his dog bowl. And he ate his dinner. He always would come up and greet me. He wasn't ever that super anxious about his dinner. But as I walked away, he, he went and ate the dinner, and I, I kept kind of surreptitiously looking back at him. And uh, I got, oh, not very far away, I don't know, maybe 50 yards away. And I looked back, and he was going back to the fawn. He sort of nuzzled the fawn in the grass. I couldn't really see it then, but I, could, I knew exactly where he had left it. And he started playing with the fawn again. And it was just a really interesting expression of his relationship to the landscape he was living in and just a lot of different
2: dimensions to
0: that episode that I thought were food for thought.
2: Yeah, you know, it uh, it's a great story, Becky. I hadn't heard that one before and it makes me think that Max was viewing you as the predator and he was, he was saying, Fawn, you stay here you know, and you'll be safe. And I'm going to go deal with this. And I'm going to come back. It's like the flip side. It's maybe I'm completely wrong in my read of it. But I could imagine him saying in this circumstance, you know, this fawn needs to be away from this human.
0: It's interesting. That's one way to look at it. You could also say, oh, gosh, I'm goofing off on the job. (laughs) Um, And maybe she shouldn't see that right now. (laughs) I don't know. But um. Maybe both, <laughs> yeah, it could definitely be both, who was that sort of a multi dimensional character that it most likely was both, and it's, it it seems like in some poorly expressed way, there's a lesson in that,
2: yeah, yeah, I think I think there's certainly maybe more than one it, what that makes me think of, Becky, is the role of observation and adaptive management, being able to see what's going on and shift uh, accordingly. And it seems like your path through life and your path with the breeds of sheep and the way you're doing things involves a lot of that. What, what can you say about how you make decisions and you know, how do you decide whether to keep going with something or to change it up? It's, it's fascinating uh, to think about whether we get, whether we get in a rut or whether we get in a groove, because it could look the same from the outside and how you decide if what you're in is the rut or the groove. Well, it's an interesting
0: question. I definitely feel like I can say over the years of trying to learn how to live with predators that I became convinced that Adaptability is the name of the game. But when I started out, I was so lacking in confidence and information that I was just kind of, you know, more uh, too nervous about just finding the right solution. But gradually, I opened up to just being a better observer. I think my husband, in many ways, was a better observer than I was. Neither one of us had particular training in livestock or crop raising or any of those things. But we did both have careers that involved living in the landscape and paying attention to it. But anyway, the more you live in one place and become accustomed to the seasonal changes and the quirks of one particular geography, you do begin to tune in more. And just being aware of how our behavior and the carnivores' behavior would vary over the seasons and they would use different parts of the landscape differently. I mean, we're not talking about really large landscapes that many ranchers deal with. Our place is just 160 acres nestled in a much larger landscape. And so it was kind of a combination of getting to know our little postage stamp, but also getting to know it in the context of the west side of the Bridger Mountains where our ranch is placed and being learning about the larger patterns of both the ungulates and the carnivores and what that meant for our risk at different times of year and also tuning in uh, unfortunately to the encroaching development in the whole Bozeman area and you know to be honest the biggest change over our lifetime here is that I worry far more about two-legged carnivores now than I do about four-legged native carnivores but all the things about you know whether it's eating habits or daily habits or figuring out what things repel the predators and what things attract them it's all just a smaller version of what ranchers have to deal with on larger landscapes Um, it's not really fundamentally different at all but because of our difference in scale that does change the patterns And because of our involvement with Predator Friendly and I worked with some conservation groups earlier, it did give me a chance to both work on and communicate with larger agricultural settings than ours. And so, you know, I'm well aware that our challenges at a ranch in a ranch this scale is different from what happens on larger ranches, but the basic issues and lessons aren't all that different. And, yeah. you know, a small place and a small flock, you may not have as much of a carnivore risk, but a smaller loss certainly has pretty major economic significance if you get into trouble.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can just imagine the feeling that might have been there when you had 12 ewes and 20% of them were gone. You know, they're individuals, they're not a flock <laughs> at that stage.
0: Yeah. And mostly it just made me realize, oh, my gosh, I
2: have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we always do. I have a friend who also works for NCAT, Linda Coffee, and, and we laugh about, uh, you know, we have daily lessons in humility um, because we raise sheep. There's, there's always more to learn, always a new mistake to make, and hopefully we can learn from it and not do it again but it seems like an infinite number of possibilities of mistakes.
0: Yeah, I think livestock husbandry is a very humbling experience. And I've seen lots of people who are very sophisticated professionals in our quote unquote modern world who really get called up short when they're certain they can jump into livestock raising and they're smart and they think they can figure it out. And people do think f- figure things out, but you're just as likely or perhaps more likely to make mistakes if you think you know everything.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I agree with that. Becky, could you could you tell us kind of how you go about raising your sheep? When do you lamb? When do you wean? Are you on pasture or, you know, are you jug lambing or pasture lambing? Mineral, you know, can you get to the to the livestock end of this? kind of give us some details, please?
0: Yeah, overall, I'd say we're a relatively laissez-faire operation, (laughs) but we do, you know, we live in a valley where there's quite a bit of snow in the wintertime and and, uh, we don't have easy grazing 12 months a year. We generally do jug lambing, although (laughs) it varies from year to year. We kind of have to adapt whatever the conditions are in that year. And it's definitely not the same. We have mostly lambed in March. This year, actually, we're lambing in April. The last few years of peculiar polar inversions meant that a few years ago, I was lambing at 35 below. And that felt kind of stupid Mm -hmm. for that. And a couple other reasons. This year, we're lambing a full month later. Usually, it's been like, starting in mid-March. But anyway, we do what's fairly typical. We shear anywhere from one to three weeks before lambing, making it easier for the lambs to find the udder and making the ewes smart enough to find shelter if the weather does get bad. Our lambing barn now for the last, oh gosh, well, close to 20 years now has been a, a greenhouse and that can get too hot if the weather's warm. But that in that case, the animals don't need to be inside, so it's pretty fluid. I will sometimes have lambs in the jug with their mother for a couple of days if the weather demands it, but if it's sunny and warm, they're outside as much as possible. So it it varies, and it can vary a lot within one lambing season or within one week for that matter. And there have been times in the past where when our flock was bigger and we, we were actively trying to sort of spread our lamb marketing over a long period. We did a pretty large section, a fraction of the flock out on pasture and that worked pretty well. Although I found that We had a lot of colored lambs and their surface area to volume ratio is so great. They were really susceptible to temperature fluctuations. Those little black Mm -hmm. lambs, they would get Mm -hmm. too hot when we were doing late lambing in May and June. Mm -hmm. Um, So I found that doing it in the cooler, but not super cold season seemed to be the best. And that also made it easier to grass finish the lambs before winter set in. We don't always butcher all of our lambs before winter sets in but the majority of the flock is being butchered when there's still growing grass around and we were always trying to you know make sure we could integrate our lambing season with hay season and other things that were happening on the ranch so just very practical considerations is what led us to mostly aim towards the latter part of March and frozen lamb is just about as good as fresh lamb we we are almost always marketing our lamb as frozen. We do sell some to a local grocery store as a fresh carcass, but we don't worry too much about exactly what the schedule is from a marketing point of view. We mostly just want to make sure that the grass-fed meat is optimally healthy, so we have the animals on grass as much as possible during butcher season. When we started, I used to feed some grain during lactation but really for the last many, many years, we essentially feed zero grain. We do purchase um, mineral to supplement the sheep. For the last probably, oh gosh, maybe 10 years, I've been getting, I've been doing the cafeteria style mineral mix where I have a box of maybe 10 to 12 compartments where I'm feeding salt, just a plain salt, but also several different mixes that have different focus They're None of them are kind of a single mixture. They're plant-based mixture. It's a company called ABC Minerals that makes these mixtures. So there's selenium, sulfur, calcium, vitamin A, oh, you know, the, the, the basic known livestock nutrient components. And it's been really fascinating to watch how the sheep are very selective. In our location, they go first for the sulfur and selenium Mixes, which we know are deficient in our soils. There's a lot of literature on how livestock know what they need. I think the human body is also good at recognizing what it needs, except the human mind is often not so smart at recognizing its own cravings.
1: But livestock
0: don't have that limitation as much as we do. And I think that in general, livestock nutritionists know more about local trace nutrient requirements than. Doctors know about local human micronutrient requirements. So it's, I, I feel like our, our flock health and lamb growth almost visibly improved when I shifted that mineral management. And I don't have the scientific studies to, to back that up, but I felt like the improvement was so radical and I could see that the, our lamb weights were better and our parasite management has. Been better since we shifted to doing that.
2: Mm-hmm. So, what weight of lambs are you butchering? What what's your finished weights on these lambs, Becky? It's quite
0: variable, but I would say it's generally between 100 and 120 live weight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep.
0: And you know, we're we're not raising super large framed sheep, but they're not the smallest breeds either. Mm-hmm. I used to worry about the size a whole lot more than I do now. And do you worry less about it because? Well, it's primarily kind of an economic question. We've sold to a lot of different chefs over the years, and they really seem to prefer not to get the really big carcasses. Financially, the butcher and the rancher have some incentive to raise a bigger animal. But then when you realize how overfed animals aren't an improvement in quality, then it seems Less sensible to have a focus on too big. I mean, we don't want to raise little rabbits either. Then you're just dealing <laughs> with, you know, too much bone, but or not enough, just good meat. But it's more about quality than quantity. And the more we learn about human diet and the earth's needs, focusing on quality of meat rather than quantity seems like it has merit for several reasons, anyway. But it's mostly, to me, on balance, it's about kind of hardiness and resilience of the animal. I've had the best luck with animals that are kind of medium frame. They don't seem to require as many groceries to get through the winter. And lambing seems easier when I'm not dealing with the extreme animals. Again, it's probably
2: not that different from human health issues. Mm-hmm. I think we share uh, an admiration for the work of Fred Provenza And what I've learned from him through his book, Nourishment and and Different Things, is completely congruent with what you're talking about. And along those lines, Becky, as you're moving more towards the caracal, Fred talks about the terroir of meat, you know, that the diet that the animals are eating can affect the flavor as can the genetics and the epigenetics. Are you noticing any changes? Have you been using the caracals on your mostly Romney ewes? long enough to have any feeling for if that is changing the flavor or any of the other qualities of either your meat or your wool? Well, I don't have a lot of
0: information because we just, last year was the first year we crossed in the caracal rams. So many of our lambs last year were caracal crosses. We're going. I'm trying to keep a line of, of straight caracal and a line of straight Romney, but the majority of our lambs are going to be crosses now. I still have some few mm-hmm. Romney rams. And so I haven't really done a, a systematic study of it yet, but my impression well, I have two major impressions. One is the caracal meat is it is a little different. It's not radically different, you know, it still tastes like lamb. It's a little bit closer to a game meat, not in that it has a gamey flavor, it's just kind of the the texture of the meat feels a little bit more like a wild animal, but it's not, at least the crosses are, are certainly not very different. I think that the flavor of the meat is, there is some effect of breed, but I think it's more a function of what the animals are eating and how they're managed. and. Mm-hmm. Um, we live on the west side of the Bridgers. That mountain range is dominantly limestone, so we have really high calcium soils. And I think that makes it pretty easy to raise tasty, sweet, tender, grass-fed meat, whether you're raising beef or lamb. And so that still holds true for the different breeds. But one of the other things I've noticed in crossing the Caracals in is that I don't know whether it's the hybrid vigor of, of mixing very different genetics or whether it's just the thrifty nature of the caracals, but our lambs continue growing late in the season and under the really pretty tough dry conditions we've had in the last couple of years. I thought that maybe we would have a significantly smaller frame size because the caracal mothers are quite small, but our lambs are not smaller. I think that the diversity in, in this mixture is serving them well. They just seem like they live on air. They don't require as much feed as when we were raising, you know, great big sheep like Columbia and things early on in our sheep life.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about the path that you've taken in your shepherding and you've you've done this side by side with Dave and and with your community Becky, but a lot of the people who listen to our podcast series are women who are thinking about just getting into sheep. So I wonder if you could comment a little about the idea of raising sheep if maybe you're new to agriculture, maybe you're a woman farming alone. What's your advice to uh, our listeners? on that?
0: Well, I guess my first comment is to say, you got to raise a breed that you like. In the beginning, I was so focused on trying to do the right thing and trying to make a living and trying to be able to sell my lambs at the regular market. I wasn't super confident just about finding my own independent path that took longer, took longer than it needed to. You have to wake up in the morning and enjoy looking at your sheep and working with them and thinking about what they represent. So, I mean, to me, one of the best things about sheep is their diversity. The idea that you can raise such profoundly different fiber types for such very different applications all from a bunch of four-legged creatures that grow in grass. That's the (laughs) essence of sheep to me. And so there is no right way. You got to figure out what fits your climate, your piece of land, your family temperament, your facilities. So there are no right and wrong answers. I have never really aspired to be selling purebred livestock. And so that changes the way one operates. I mean, if you're really trying to sell registered breed stock, you kind of have to have some different priorities. And again, it's not a right or wrong. I'm really glad there are people out there who are raising breed stock, but that's not what we've been up to. It's really, to me, it's mostly about being tuned into what your landscape is suitable for first, and then everything else kind of
2: can feed into it, but make it something you enjoy. This is such a sensitive question, and and I know it's really particular to the setting, but so many people who are thinking about getting into sheep, they have to think about profitability. They have to think about, you know, is this going to be something that is going to cost me a lot of money, but I'll recoup it later, or it's going to be a labor of love, or it's going to really be a you know, an enterprise with a nice profit margin. Can you say anything about that? Yeah, for most people, that definitely is a a central consideration.
0: But again, the strategy really has to fit not only your scale, but also what other enterprises you have, whether you have a job on the side that you're, you know, you're leaving the place for, or whether you're trying to have a diversified income from your own piece of land. I mean, as I say, when we started, I kind of was just trying to do something that wasn't it was close enough to the mainstream so that I could sell through conventional markets and and I could find new rams through, you know, in in my local region and. And so in Montana, you know, there's a handful of breeds that are considered normal. And if that's the world that you want to operate in, then you kind of do have to do something that's not too different from what your neighbors are doing. And that's very, I think it's very possible to take that approach and yet still incorporate some of these governing principles of farming as if nature matters. And still, I mean, that to me, the, the attraction of sheep is that they They don't really lend themselves well to confinement operations and in super industrialized strategy for agriculture. So you can still be seeking a a wild farming strategy and a healthy ecological system while raising extremely conventional breeds if your landscape allows it. The choice to to diverge into some of these more primitive breeds or, or less common breeds Yeah, in my view, that has been helpful in in seeking a thriftier animal, but a lot of it's also about what the end goal is for working with the fibers and, and just other personal decisions. But I really don't think the breed choice is you know there's not some certain path that's the best path you kind of have to figure out what the niche is both geographically and personally and and nobody can really tell you that you have to try things and and be some people are better at understanding their own instincts than i was um i'm kind of a slow learner i guess so some people i think can get this right out of the gate i did not
2: hmm. Well, I feel like I could talk with you about this for days, Becky. I guess I have <laughs> over the years talked with you. I've learned so much from you. Um, but as we come to the close of this interview, I wonder, you know, what question did I miss asking you that that you really wanted to answer or, you know, some type of a, some type of a summary or something that you'd like to offer the listeners. I I, I wish I could just somehow bring bring your attitude forward and the the richness that you've built in your local environment and it seems like you've built in your life through sheep and it's like what questions do you ask to get at that so what can you tell us in closing
0: well i didn't really have any particular uh question or answer in mind when we started this but i guess i think that the main thing to think about now is our worlds are changing in ways that we don't really fully understand. So to me, the interesting question about raising sheep is what should we be doing with sheep that responds to these changes that we don't fully understand yet? And partly that's about you know, adapting to changing ecological conditions, but just as importantly, it's about asking questions, how we can make livestock husbandry a part of our changing economy. And that's, so that's about integrating cropping and livestock, but it's also about, I think it's going to be about the changing social structure in our society. And I feel like the younger generation is figuring that out faster than the old farts are. But I think our notions of land tenure, ranch ownership, generational shifts on the land, and how that works with livestock and farming. I think those are some of the interesting questions right now, and many of us are beginning to experiment. But there's a lot we don't know, and there's some interesting possibilities there.
2: Well said. If listeners are interested in more on this topic from Becky about about the future and and how agroecology is important to our ability to take care of our planet and people in a good way, uh, I wrote a blog with Becky back in in September, I think, and we'll link to it in the show notes where Becky talks much more about the aspects of bringing together social change along with taking care of the land and livestock. So with that, I just want to thank you, Becky, so much, not just for this interview, but for the work that you do. I think it's really important and inspiring and can't thank you enough. Thank you, Linda.
1: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service, as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.